words. Uh, I think that it is crucial and one of the most neglected things, at least in my history, that I've ever heard touched on. God's people daily deal with their consciences. Every day. But are we handling it right? Are we feeding it the right food? So that's been our subject. Our series has been called A Clear Conscience Towards God and Men. From the very words of Paul. Now, if you'll open your Bibles, we're going to read in two places today. First, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 8, verses 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 9 through 13. Please stand with me. And we will read the word of God. First Corinthians chapter 8. We will be turning from here to Romans 14. <clears throat> Beginning here in First Corinthians 8 verse 9. This is God's word. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge... Shall the weak brother, now listen to Paul's words, because they are spirit-inspired words. Through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 14. We will be reading a bit lengthier section, verses 1 through 15. Beginning in verse 1, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day... Regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, 
eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not, therefore, judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Amen. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. As we stand before thee, almighty God, we often do not realize, we do not remember that we are in thy presence. Thou knowest us, thou seest us, Thy knowledge of each of us far surpasses our own knowledge of ourselves. Lord, Thou, with Thy piercing eye, sees every heart here this morning. Come by Thy glorious and powerful Spirit. Come with the power that created the world. Come with the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Come and bring life where there is none. O oh, Father, for hearts that are darkened and bound in the chains of sin, set them free this morning. And O oh, Father, those that know Thee, know those that are alive in Thee, may they rejoice in Thy Word. May they hear Thy Word. May they believe thy word and may they obey thy word. May we all walk in thy wonderful truth. Father, I know. I know that I'm a very weak vessel. Thy word is infallible and I am too fallible. I pray that thou wouldst overcome my fleshly weaknesses and that thy word and its truth would be made plain, would be made clear 
to all those who hear it today. Now, O Christ, thou art the fountain of life. Thou dost sit at the Father's right hand in splendor and glory. Thou art interceding for us, O risen Savior. Thou dost see us. Thou dost see thy people all over the world today. From those who began worshiping thee early this morning to those who will be worshiping thee later in the day. We pray that all of our hearts would be tuned to thee. That we would be one in magnifying and glorifying thy holy name. Be in our midst. O great Christ. O great lover of our souls. Make thyself known to us here today. And we pray it in thy holy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, the great evangelist, planted a church in the city of Rome. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, wrote a letter to that church. The theme of the letter is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel is the power of God to salvation. The power that saves Jews and Gentiles who believe it. And the theme of Jew and Gentile runs throughout Paul's letter. Jews and Gentiles were united by their faith in Christ. But they were divided in their understanding of what they could do and could not do as believers. The Jews judged the Gentiles over food, sacred days, and other matters of the ceremonial law. For that reason, Paul speaks to them as weak in the faith. That is, they were weak in understanding their liberty in the gospel. The Gentiles despised the Jews that did not understand their liberty in Christ. So we call the things that divided them conscience Controversies. What a great tragedy it is among many of Christ's churches in our day that they are divided and very often over conscience controversies. For those of you who have not been with us, a conscience controversy <clears throat> is generally something that has not been forbidden or commanded in God's word. Therefore, we must seek principles in Scripture to understand how to deal with those things that are not mentioned in the word of God. And it is in that seeking, it is in searching the Scriptures for those principles that God's people often disagree and then begin to judge or despise one another. That is directly anti-Christian. 
Let me repeat that. <clears throat> we spent some time a couple of weeks ago considering that there is such a thing as a proper, a biblical judgment. We may look from the eyes of scriptures at certain, uh, uh, with the eyes of scripture at various things and come to determine this is right or this is wrong. This honors God. This does not honor God. That is righteous judgment. When our minds are filled with, guided by a proper interpretation of Scripture and then applying it to the situation. We all do this. In fact, <clears throat> even the people that say, you shouldn't judge me. All you have to do is say, is it wrong for me to judge you? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, did you just judge me? Because they did. They believe there's something right and wrong. The issue is, by what standard, by what authority do we say something is right or wrong? It cannot be our feelings. It must be the word of God. And because not every single aspect of human life is spoken to directly from the scriptures, we have to go on that search to find various principles that help us out with that. <clears throat> so, the church at Rome was divided by conscience controversies. Paul wanted unity among the Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. As a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Paul loved the Jews. He had great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart, he said. For them, he wished that he could be accursed from Christ. For his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's an extraordinary thing to say. To have known and understood the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know it is the only hope of being pardoned of sin. To know that it is the only way to God. To know that it is the power of God unto salvation. And to say, though I believe it, if such a thing were possible, I would say, Lord, curse me and save them. Now that's love. That's Christ-like. Because Christ said, Father, curse me that they might live. You can see Christ all over Paul's letters. So, as the apostle to the Gentiles, he loved them as well. That's a big step for someone who was a Pharisee. That's loving the unclean. And he did. He loved them dearly. And we don't even have to take any time to prove that. Just read all of his letters and you will hear him regularly telling those to whom he writes of his love for them in Christ Jesus. He expressed the Christ-like love 
that filled his heart in his many writings. Now, his purpose in chapters 14 and 15 of Romans is to unite the divided body. You must understand those two chapters in the context of the entire letter, or you will misread it. You'll start putting all kinds of things into the words that Paul says and using them in the wrong way. I know from Jesus Christ all things are clean. Are they? When he's talking about food, they are. But there are some unclean things. It's usually the works of men. Paul so desired the oneness of the churches. And he was always grieved that there was that inevitable division between Jews and Gentiles. Now, that's what he's dealing with in a big way here. So Paul taught them vital lessons in loving one another. Does that sound familiar? I certainly, if you're a Christian here today, I hope it sounds familiar. That's, that's the words of Christ Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you. Paul instructed the Roman Christians in the matters of conscience and stumbling blocks. The title of our message is The Dreadful Sin of Stumbling a Believer. This is part 10. So may our loving Heavenly Father help us to understand the inspired text. May the Holy Spirit give us ears to hear and to obey. And may Christ Jesus help us to love him and one another. We've been laboring under one main heading for several weeks now. That heading is what are the Holy Spirit's primary lessons in chapter 14? In chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, verses 1 and 2, teach that Christ's congregations are usually made up of the strong and the weak consciences. Therefore, now listen carefully, we draw a conclusion from that. And all of us need to take this seriously. Paul has made clear <laughs> that it's not unusual. He doesn't say, man, I don't know about you Romans. I've never seen anything like this. He's seen it over and over again. You can read the book of Acts and read it carefully. And as you do, you will begin to see the kind of thing that Paul was always dealing with. The Jews would judge those unclean Gentiles. How could they even be real Christians if they weren't circumcised and keeping the law of Moses? And those that had never been under the old covenant law, those that had never been Jews, got tired of it. They looked down on those who were constantly saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, you have to, you have to celebrate this day. So there was division. It was real. And while it may not be the same issues, the churches of Christ today are still filled with division. 
And it is our responsibility under Christ to heal those divisions. So, if, if the churches are usually made up of strong and weak consciences, we must, each of us that are believers, we, or each is a believer, we must expect conscience controversies. You must expect them. Expect them in your congregation and biblically prepare for them. How do you do that? You stay in prayer before God. You say, you've gathered me together with a group of people. I want to love them as Christ loved us. That was his command. I want to love them. So, Father, show me how. Help me to so adjust and instruct my conscience and my filters that I can deal with people who divide with me on conscience controversies. Again, for those of you that are visiting with us, there are in Scripture what we call primary doctrines. They're non-negotiable. The doctrine of the Godhead, the Trinity, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that Christ is the God-man, truly God, truly man in one person. These are not negotiable. You've got a different God. You've got a different Savior if you don't have that God. There are secondary doctrines that we may understand differently and we may proceed to practice them differently, but at least in our hearts and consciences, we would be like the, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome, and is that we're giving thanks and we're doing what we believe God would have us to do. We believe that the only subjects for baptism are believers. We do not believe, as much as we love our children, we do not believe that they are the recipients of baptism. That is for those who repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus. That is a secondary doctrine. Secondary doesn't mean unimportant. But there is some leeway in the way that we understand and apply those. The return of the Lord Jesus is another. It's vital and you cannot deny the second coming of Christ and, and imagine yourself a Christian. But when he's going to return is a matter that the Lord's people have wrestled with throughout two millennia. So there are different views. <clears throat> but we're not talking about primary or secondary doctrine that are truths that have been held by the people of God down through the ages. We're talking about conscience controversies. Now, <clears throat> verses 3 and 4 of chapter 14 teach that God receives his children whether they have strong or weak consciences. Therefore, we must receive strong or weak believers because God has received him. We have no business turning away those that are his children. He can make the weak stand. Verse 5, all believers must be fully persuaded of why they believe what they believe. Paul has said this very plainly. Therefore, 
listen carefully, ignorant judging and despising accomplish nothing but division. Ignorant judging and despising accomplish nothing but division and diminish the power of the gospel in the eyes of the world. Therefore, <clears throat> we must know why we believe what we believe. And we need to be ready at, from time to time to go back and look at something we've believed for some time and, and examine it according to the word of God. My mind has not changed about many things since I've been here, but it has changed about some things. And the more you grow... As I was talking with Brother Gage and Brother Israel the other day, if you read John Calvin in his early writings and then read him in his later uh, writings, you'll see a man who's grown in his understanding of things. He's not, he is not neglecting or rejecting any major doctrine. He understood all those very early on. But his mind, as he continued to saturate his heart with the scriptures over the years, as he continued to pray, as he continued in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, fellowshipping, uh, discussing all of these kinds of things, his edge was being sharpened. Arthur Pink completely changed his mind on the issue of the return of Christ. He began as a, disp a dispensationalist. He ended up as an amillennialist. For, in, in some books, <laughs> that was apostasy. In other books, he finally got the light, right? So be careful, by the way, when you're reading particular readers. What, where is he in his walk? John MacArthur, over the years, has come out and publicly said, I, I used to teach this. I was wrong. Now, it wasn't about the Trinity. It wasn't about the deity of Christ. It wasn't about the blood atonement of the Lord Jesus. He did change his, his, his view of the extent of the atonement. He used to believe in a, in a universal atonement. And he came to see a particular redemption. <clears throat> Why? He continued in the word. Your conscience is never going to carry you through a day if you're not constantly sharpening it with the word. What does God say? And the more we see those things, the more we realize, okay, maybe I didn't quite have that right. <clears throat> Verses 5 through 9 teach us that Jesus alone is the Lord of his people and of their consciences. Therefore, we are not lords over each other's consciences. It is the responsibility of pastors and teachers and elders to preach the word of God to God's people. To fill and encourage and sharpen their consciences. But they're not the lords of God's people's consciences. We've had people that have come here before. That are no longer here. That have said... Well, you know, you need to do this and you need to and you need to tell these people this, that and the other. And I've said, you know, I agree with you on this. I don't agree with you on that. But I will tell you this. 
I'm not the Lord of their conscience. I'm going to sit down and I can talk with them about those matters and I can point them in the direction of the truth and we can live that truth before them. But they have a Lord. That Lord bought them with his own blood. They're his, not mine, not Pastor Clarence's. Verses 10 through 13a teach that all believers will give account of their lives to Jesus Christ in the day of judgment. Therefore, we must not be the judge and jury of others in conscience controversies. That is Christ's work. We can help them. We can discuss with them. We can point them to passages of Scripture. We can point them to books. But we're not to try to take command of their consciences. And that brings us to the heading uh, with which we left off last week, which is verses 13b through 15. We must not let our liberty destroy a weak believer. First, Paul says in verse 13, stop illegitimately judging. Second, do not stumble other believers. Thirdly, there is no food or drink that is unclean of itself. Ceremonially unclean and therefore displeasing to God. There's no food or drink. Paul's going to go on to say the kingdom of God is not food and drink. Now, that brings us to today. Number four, love for our brethren must prevail. Now, this is Paul's point from the beginning of the chapter. He doesn't say it. He works his way all the way to here before he says this. He was a very wise man. He truly had a pastor's heart and concern for the sheep of God. He writes in verse 15, but if thy brother be grieved with thy thy meat, and there the idea is with thy food, what you're eating, now walkest thou not charitably. Now we can lose that sometimes in the beauty of the King James English. He's saying, you're not walking in love. You're not walking in love if you do this. That's a judgment, isn't it? (laughs) But it's a judgment according to the word of Christ. Christ said, love one another as I have loved you. That means each one of us has a responsibility. Each one of us that professes Christ has a responsibility to know Christ and his love and then reflect it as we can. Nobody does this perfectly. But we can do it well. We can grow and mature in it. So, if a Gentile believer's liberty stumbles his Jewish brother, Paul says to the Gentile, Now walkest thou not charitably. Take note. We often miss what appears to be a little thing here. It's not a little thing. Take note. Paul's exhortation here is to the strong, not to the weak. 
It's to the strong that, that have this liberty in Christ. He urges the strong to abstain from eating food which would damage the weak spiritually. What's under that command? Self-denial. Jesus said, if any man will come after me. That means if anybody, anybody will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Listen carefully. Daily. And follow after me. That's how he lived. That's the kind of love that he had. Everything about Christ's life was set against the beauty of self-denial. This is God united to humanity. In other words, this is what Paul is saying. If your brother's weak conscience does not permit him to eat food prohibited by ceremonial law, And you eat that food in his presence because you are confident of your new covenant liberty. Your act is not governed by love. That's a strong statement. That's a judgment. But it's a judgment according to the word of God with a proper application. He's saying... You Gentiles were never under the Mosaic Covenant. And I understand you you have heard me preach. You have heard me teach. You know that you were not under the Mosaic Covenant. You know that. You are free from that. The Jews are having trouble with this. These are my kinsmen. I know how they think. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrew. I know what they're facing. I know the turmoil that goes off in them when they see you eat something unclean before God. I know what it does to them. You have a responsibility to them. Brethren, when people come to us from this world, Their lives sometimes have been so perverted, so twisted, so unimaginably confused about what life is and what they are. We would be foolish and unloving not to take that into consideration when we're talking to them. It's our nature to want to tell them what to do today, now. You've got five minutes. That's not biblical. It never has been. It is not now and it never will be. Jesus went into Rome. Pagan Rome. He sent somebody in there with the gospel. It could have been those who, who heard Peter on the day of Pentecost. We're not entirely sure how the church there started but there's a growing church in that place but now already within a generation they're dividing why jew and gentile Eh, and if it wasn't jew or gentile (laughs) it could be something else it doesn't take long for human beings to divide jesus christ came for us to unite 
Paul said, <clears throat> in fact, love is the primary issue here. This is what Paul is going for. Paul has already laid out the groundwork for love between believers. He said in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, let love be without dissimulation. That means hypocrisy. Don't say you love somebody if you don't love them. If you don't love them like Christ told you to love them. Love is one of the things that the world wants the most. But like a very old song said, they're, they're looking for it in all the wrong places. They won't come to the God of love to know what real love is. Hollywood has utterly perverted their thinking on what love is. The culture has perverted their thinking on what real love is. So much so that very often when they look at real love, they don't recognize it. But Paul says, let your love be without hypocrisy. That's a self-giving love. He goes on to say, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Now, once again, we can get a little lost in the beauty of the King James Version. But be kindly affectioned. Those words, kindly affection, mean. Now, if you've been drifting, here's a good point to come back. Right? Listen, listen carefully. Kindly affection means loving in a way characteristic of the relationship between husband and wife, mother and child, father and son. That's what the Greek means. In other words, love your fellow Christians as your family. I'll tell you what, in family reform, there are people that will take their family to God's people any day. That's distortion. Jesus said so. I mean, did you hear that? <laughs> did you hear that? Dearly love your brothers and sisters in Christ with an affectionate love. The kind of love you show your own flesh and blood. Do we hear that? Do we, now, you've heard me say this so many times. I repeat, and I'm not embarrassed to do so. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's the word of God? If so, how are we doing? How are we living in that? Does the world see that kind of love between us? Or is it just nice words that you say to somebody? Love you. That's not going to get it in the day of judgment. It might satisfy some folk here today. But it's not going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not saying that we should denigrate our families but the problem is that we often elevate them 
to the place of God. They get all the time. Everything we do, it's all for them. Well, now, when we love our families as Christ tells us to, as Christ tells us to, we're doing a good thing. But it cannot be insular. It can't just be me and my family. That's it. We're here. Even though we're here with all y'all, you're okay. But it's my family. That's it. Love your family. Have a high biblical view of your family. But Jesus says, he's got a family and you're to love that family. Not with second rate love. But like you love those in your family to whom your heart and soul are tied to. Do you do that? Am I doing that? You've got to answer that question. Because Christ has said it before us here. Listen. <clears throat> Who is Paul to make that crazy statement, right? You're not walking in love. <clears throat> You're to love without dissimulation. You're to be kindly affectioned with brotherly love. Where did he get that kind of idea? Was he... <laughs> Was he getting that from like outer space transmissions? Where did that come from? Did, it, did he just sit down one day and have, I got a good idea, let's be nice to each other. By the way, that doesn't necessarily mean love. You be nice to people that you despise. <clears throat> Get in the workplace <laughs> and you'll see some of that up close. Now, where did he get that idea? He got it from Jesus. When Jesus was teaching in the house, someone told him that his mother and brothers, his flesh and blood were outside. Now, it was Jesus, not the man Christ Jesus, but the eternal son of God that gave us the fifth commandment. He gave us the honor, thy father and thy mother. That came from him. Now, what happened in this scenario? Jesus is inside the house. There are people around him, the text says. And his mother and brother show up outside. We want to talk to Jesus. So what did Jesus do? Did he say, I, 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 all right, everybody, hold it. I'll put your finger in your scroll, and uh, I'll go over here and talk to, to mom and my brothers for a few seconds. What did Jesus do? <laughs> he answered, who is my mother and who my brethren? And he looked round about on them, which sat about him and said, behold, my mother and my brethren. Listen carefully for whosoever shall do the will of God. The same is my mother, my brother, my sister. Now, is that just nice, flowery Jesus words? Or is Jesus telling you something about his people? He loves his people. He loved his mother and his brothers. So what's at the heart of all this? He loved his father above everybody else. Notice he didn't mention his father. His father was in heaven. And he was doing his father's will. That's what took precedence. Doing his father's will. 
Now, are we implementing that in our families? Is Christ or the needs of his people burning in our hearts? Maybe we have so little to offer to the world that they're just not interested. If you walked into a place where people were loving people like we're reading, people would be touched. Churches today, many, not all of them, many churches are just preaching stations. Show up, get your sermon, you go where you want because, you know, you like the length of the service here or they got a particular youth ministry there or you've got, mm, it's not why we go. We want to make sure we're going to a place where we're hearing the word of God said before us. And that being the case, <clears throat> if they came in here and we were loving each other as defined here, not perfectly, but really, I don't think we'd see as many gaps as we see. There's a magnetism about love. There just is. <laughs> there is a magnetism about love. It's, it's, you can almost touch it. You can see it. And you can feel it. Same goes for joy. <clears throat> but that's another sermon. That's another sermon series. So, Paul is talking to the Roman Christians about that kind of love. That kind of love. And again, chapter 13, 8 through 10. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Can't throw the law away. It's telling you what love is. And when we're abiding with that law burning in our hearts under gospel light and power, we can love when we act according to what that says. <clears throat> love does no wrong to a neighbor, but stumbling him does. And that's what Paul is saying to the Romans. Some of you are stumbling each other. That's not love. Jesus loves his brothers and sisters. That means us. Jesus loves us. He loves us. It's hard to get that. <laughs> Forgive me, but in our culture, we kind of expect it. Well, I'm pretty lovable, right? Maybe not. But Jesus loves those who can do nothing for themselves and who look to him to save them. He loves them. He loves them. And he makes them know that. He makes them know it. Jesus loves his church. He loves his churches. He loves those for whom he died. His life, his death, and his resurrection are the model. 
Now, I know if, if you're listening, you say, well, I, hold it. I can't die for everybody's sins. Jesus already did that. True. I'm not likely to rise again from the grave three days after they put me under. Uh, true. But Jesus is not saying do all the works that I do because he's unique. But he's saying love like I do. What is that? Self-sacrificing. It is self-denying. Our culture is not about that. And our flesh isn't either. <laughs> our human nature culture. Me, my comfort, me. Every true church of Jesus Christ then should be a community that is giving its life to love Christ's people. And in clear, tangible ways, self-sacrifice, self-denial. And what is the model of that love? As I have loved you. Well, that means we have to know Christ, doesn't it? We have to know Christ and we have to know what he taught and, and how he lived. And that's one of the reasons God has given us the Holy Scriptures. Now, if you are following me, one of the most destructive sins to the love we're talking about is the dreadful sin of stumbling a believer. We're to love, not injure. That is Paul's point. When we stumble a believer, we are not guided by love. And one of the very tricky things about this whole matter is that often we're doing something that we think is good that can stumble somebody. We'll get into the various shades of stumbling, the Lord willing, next week. Because there are, there are times that you put a stumbling block in front, of, in front of people and they like it because they don't see it as stumbling. They don't see the sin and what you've just enticed them with. So it's not how people react that necessarily means something is stumbling. You can be doing something that you think is good. I as a pastor have done things. That I thought were right. And in the context with the people I was dealing with. It deeply troubled and offended them. We'll talk about pastors at the end of the list. Because theirs is a greater judgment. So. When we stumble a believer. We are the enemy of love. Please let that sink in. That's why Paul rebukes the Romans. He says, when you put a stumbling block in front of your brother, you're not walking in love. Love is not that ooey gooey feeling. It is treating them according to the word of God, regardless of the cost to you. That's what Christ did. The world, listen, listen. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always promoting sin. Always attacking and dividing Christ's churches. What then? Should we be partners with the world, the flesh, and the devil 
to cause other people to sin? Look at Christ. Look at Christ on the cross. Look at him in his agony and in his shame, in his humiliation, as he hangs naked before the the people that he had created through Abraham. Look at him there. What's he doing? Well, that's a good example. Right, but that's not enough. He was paying the penalty for my sins and for the sins of all those who repent and believe. So what business do we have then if we can see the bloody Christ, if we can see that he loved us and rose again the third day that we might have life, what are we doing helping the big three, world, flesh, and the devil, to sin? Cause other people to sin. You've got to let that sink, 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 sink in. Because we're insensitive. We're careless. We've all grown up with snappy and quick-witted people on television and the whole thing about life is when you can get that zinger right at somebody. Oh, everybody laughs and it's great. Been great. I've been guilty, hugely guilty of that. Used to be my thing, as a matter of fact. I couldn't fight with my body. I was a wimp. I got beat up in almost every fight I ever had. But I figured out that with my mouth... I could do things that other guys couldn't do with their fist. And you can say something to somebody that they will go to their grave remembering. You want it to be something good. Not something that makes them the butt of of the joke. May God preserve us. We're not here to do the world, the flesh, and the devil's work for it. May God preserve us from that. We are not loving Christ. Uh, We are not loving as Christ loved us when we cause a believer to stumble. For that reason, Paul appeals to Christ's example in chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. (laughs) What? What? Them? Yes. My brother, my sister in the Lord. Oh, man. They don't agree with me about this, that, and the other. Well, if there's primary doctrine, there's good reason for those disagreements. But conscience controversies need to be handled differently. Wisely. Lovingly. Graciously. And please don't hear me saying... What anybody thinks and what anybody does is okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Just don't tell me I'm wrong about something. I'm not saying that in the slightest. We all have one standard. The 66 books of the Bible. We have one Savior, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we're to love what God loves. What does God love? His people. Some of us are not that lovable. But the Lord doesn't say, love my people, except for the hard heads. Or for the ones, 
That should be pointing some other way. I don't want anybody to think I'm pointing at them. <laughs> that wasn't pointed at my wife. Brethren, are you thinking? You really need to be thinking. We're in a day where darkness is rising. And there needs to be the light of Christ shining. Now, of course, that means preaching the gospel. I could get a bunch of amens if I said that just right. But something else that testifies to the world is the way people in the churches treat each other. Matthew Vogan, in, in his updated edition of James Durham on stumbling blocks and on <clears throat> offense scandal he says as much or more damage has been done to the churches by stumbling blocks than false doctrine I believe him I've been pastor long enough now to say mm. 25 years ago I would have said oh that's a little extreme mm -mm. The way professing Christians treat themselves very often is appalling. I got my five people down there that I like to go and see, but that's it. And they're the ones I talk to. And we just talk about stuff we like to talk about. Interestingly enough, it's not always about Christ. What are you, what are you fellowshipping about? Is it just these are the people I just like to be with? It's nice to be with people that you like. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But a church is not just a social thing. It's a living body filled with the Spirit of God to bring glory and honor to the God that saved us. We do that best when we love His truth and love His people. Do you really love His people? Or do you just like those in your little group? Listen to Paul again. He said in another place, Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Does that sound like the churches you've grown up in? If you can say, yes, that's a wonderful thing. I believe that there are genuine and true churches. I believe this is a real church. I believe that God has signally shown us on numerous occasions that he has people here. I believe that. I really do or I wouldn't be here. But at the same time, we all have the same book. And right now, figuring out who the Antichrist is in my book, as what I'm reading here, isn't quite as important as loving Jesus as people. And figuring out how this book teaches us to love Jesus as people. The eternal son of God was and is deity, yet he denied himself and became a man. Listen, this is the one we're to model ourselves after. Listen, he denied himself of all divine and heavenly privileges. 
He denied himself of the praises of heaven and made himself of no reputation. He denied himself of the adoration and admiration of heaven for the detestation of those made in his image. He denied himself of the obedience of heavenly citizens and became obedient unto death. He denied his right to live and he died on the cross of Calvary to save his people from their sins. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. This is the model. Again, we can't die, but the, uh, we can't die for the sins of one another, but the scriptures do say we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's when it's reflecting Christ. Let me ask you another important question. Do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Now, if you say yes, do you believe that when his word is faithfully preached and delivered to his people, that God is speaking to them. Can you believe that? Doesn't matter how pathetic the, the fleshy vessel is. But if he faithfully brings the truths of God's word. Are you hearing God? If you are. Are you obeying what God is telling you? If you see the love and the beauty of Christ, you have a motivation to do so. We'll never be able to provoke one another to that high and lofty love without having it set before us. We've got to see that love. Look, look at the cross. Look at Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Why is he there? He never had a wicked thought. Never had one wicked thought. Not one. He never said a wicked word. Never shot his mouth off to his mom. I mean, when they said, your mom's outside. He said, well, I'll tell you who my mom and, and, and my brothers and sisters are. But he didn't say, tell her to take a hike. Did he? No. He never did anything wicked to anybody. He went about doing good, filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you saturating your heart and your mind and your conscience with that life? See, if you're not, how can we possibly do what Paul is saying? How can we love other people like the Bible tells us to? And you say, oh, well, you know, nobody does this perfect. I mean, I'm not perfect. I know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's true. We're imperfect. None of us does it perfectly. No one will do it perfectly in this world. Absolutely true. And we fail. I fail. I hate the word fail because it attaches itself to me so much. But the fact of the matter is I have a great Savior who continues to love me. Amen. And that continuing love strengthens me and helps me and gives me 
love for others. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. The love of Christ should make us loving people. Just that simple. Well, okay, we're finding that clock again. <laughs> and I can tell you who's winning. <clears throat> the hands of the clock. Let me take you to one more thought, and then we'll stop for today. By the way, I did say last week we were going to do all application today. Uh, I've been trying to make exposition and application work together here at the same time. <clears throat> but we're going to continue in the idea of applying this. How do we love like Christ loves? How do we avoid putting a stumbling block in front of somebody? Paul said, as we read this morning in Corinthians and in Romans, he says, you want to judge something? Judge this. <laughs> Don't put a stumbling block in front of God's people. We've got to believe that. We must drink that in because it is there that we generally do the most damage to each other. Whether it's a conscience controversy or not. As we'll see next week. In fact, let me even say it this way. <clears throat> Our next major heading, though we're not finished with the one we're on, in what ways can we stumble others? And I don't mean can, may we. I mean, this is how we're able to do this. Well, first, we can stumble others in our family. We can stumble others generally in the Christian life. We can stumble others particularly in our congregations. We can stumble others in relation to the government. We can stumble others outside the church. And worst of all, pastors and elders can stumble Christ's people. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. Often when we think we're doing what's right, doing what's good. <clears throat> Say, well, I'm not so sure about all this. This is sounding a little depressing. Well, I don't want anybody to be depressed. I want everybody to go and look in the mirror and say, am I loving like that? Show me how to love like that, Lord. As we hear about thee in the days ahead, as we hear about our consciences, as we hear about stumbling other people into sin, which is a grievous sin. Do, do you realize we're all here knowing that we're sinners because the very first family created stumbled one another. The Bible's full of dysfunctional families. Did you know that? <clears throat> you can't find any perfect ones. But there's, there is one coming. Jesus' work for his people. All of his people, by the time he comes again, we're all going to be like him. We're going to be like him. Our stumbling days will be over. Our falling days will be over. So my brethren, we have a love set before us that's astounding. 
And it's clear when we cause someone to stumble into sin, husbands and wives, you can do that to each other. Parents and children, parents, you can cause your children to stumble. Children, you can cause your siblings to stumble. And when we do, it's a very grievous sin. What we want to do is avoid it as much as possible, always looking to Christ and his blood to wash away our failures and our sins, always. And as we continue to live in his love, to show that love to one another. We've got to learn it from him. We'll take up there next week, God willing. Father, we thank thee for thy grace and thy goodness. How great thou art. Thou art lovely. Thou art pure. Thou art righteous. And we pray, oh my Father and my God, that thou wouldst teach us to love like this. Father, I read thy word. I understand your call for us to love. And as I look at it, and as I look at Christ, I'll see how how often I fail my wife. I fail my children. I fail the Lord's people. Oh, how I thank thee for a crucified and resurrected Savior. And help us each to grow in this great and glorious love. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me, please. <clears throat> for what things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Today uh, is our third of the...